Hello, and welcome to Patricia C. Reedy Rainbow, a podcast where we reread the Enchanted Source Chronicles and yell about them. <laughs> okay, so there's just a lot of head shaking happening. You guys don't love it? I didn't shake my head. I shook my Shelby head. Shelby did enough of it for both of you. But to be yeah. fair, that's how I normally react to Amy's puns, so. Yeah. Aw, thanks. <laughs> So you may be familiar with this podcast as Tordal Recall, the name of our regular podcast, but this is a Patreon rewards episode. We hit one of our goals on Patreon. The reward was we would make a bonus episode about a book suggested by our patrons and Enchanted Forest Chronicles was chosen. So that's what we're doing. It's a different podcast now. And I'm the host because I actually read these ones. <laughs> <laughs> So we only read Dealing with Dragons. If you haven't read it, we're only going to be talking about the first book. We'll have a spoiler section, so you can skip it if you want to read the different ones. But if you want to read that book and get back to us, you might have a little more fun listening to this. Dealing with Dragons was the first book. It was published as a novel in 1990, but based on a short story that was published in 1987 by Patricia C. Reedy. I'm Amy. I'll be the host. My pronouns are she, her. And we're going to be introducing ourselves with our favorite chapter titles from the book Dealing with Dragons. Mine is chapter four, in which Kazul has a dinner party and Simmerine makes dessert. Mmm, solid choice. My name is Shelby, and my pronouns are she, her, and my favorite is chapter title number six, in which the wizards do some snooping and Simmerine snoops back. Oh, it's a very good one. My name is Gus, and my pronouns are they, them, and uh, I'm actually going to do chapter five, in which Simmerine receives a formal call from her companions in dire captivity. Yeah, that was my second choice. Yeah, yeah so we just picked three chapters in a row. Yeah, they're good <laughs> chapters. Uh, the chapter titles are so good. I love these books, guys. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So now that we've all introduced ourselves, let's move on to First Adventure, or the Historia Draconum. So... When did you first read this book? Oh, goodness. I, I think there were maybe dinosaurs outside. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is legitimately one of the first uh, books I remember, like, truly loving as a kid. Mm-hmm. Uh, my brother and I both had a copy. Um, we shared a copy that was, like, a bind-up edition of all four that was hardcover and utterly destroyed by the time I was in, like, fourth or fifth grade. Um, like, pages falling out, like, broken in half. Like, just read it so many times. Mm-hmm. That year for Christmas, whenever that was, um, my parents actually gave each of us a separate set of them. <laughs> the state of this book had become so dire. So copy that I, I now have. Um, I had, like, a little box set. I've always loved this book. Yeah. It's a quality book. I read this book for the first time um, I as an audiobook um, when I was six years old on a road trip with my family. My mom picked it up from the library. It was on cassette tape, and we listened <laughs> to it in the car. And I, like, I don't have many memories from, like, being six years old. It's not like, you know, I, not much is going on when you're six years old. But I can remember listening to the absolutely ridiculous dragon voices, and also ridiculous <laughs> princess voices, honestly. I mean, um, there aren't many voices in that audiobook that aren't 
ridiculous. They're all completely absurd. It's great. If you haven't listened to the audiobook, you should give it a listen. It's fun. Or maybe not. Gus and I may have some differing opinions. We have polarized opinions. I find it charming. Um, anyways, I also reread this for this as an audiobook uh, because I own it as an audiobook because I listen to it at work sometimes, like every two years or so. I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I didn't oh. buy it special for this or anything. <laughs> nice. Oh, I love that. So I have a very vivid memory of the first time that I read this book because it was a book that I was supposed to read for my birthday. <laughs> I was ten, turning 10 years old, and that year was going to be the first time that I was ever on a plane, but that was going to be on my birthday exactly. So my mom like brought me to Borders and had me pick out a book and said, this is going to be your plane book. Don't read it before you get on the plane. I sure did read it before we got on the plane. <laughs> and my mom was like, well, what are you going to read by the plane? And I basically said in the like meekest most 10 year old way possible sounds like we have to go back to borders <laughs> and then i bought the other three books all of which i also read before we got on the plane oh man no okay i have to like give more of my background now in response to your two because I, there were two other things about my background with this book the first of all being the other books in this series when i was a kid i reread the series all the time that's the issues with our book but I had a very distinct reading order, which was utterly ridiculous. Ooh. Because when I was a kid, should be noted, this does not hold true even a little bit now. When I was a kid, my favorite book was the fourth book. Mm. I think I liked I liked that it's like a little, I don't remember, if, is it actually first person or is it just closer? I feel like it's a little closer. It's first person. Okay, it's first person. It, I, I think I liked that and I liked that the, the character was pretty young. And so I would always read the fourth book first. And then I would be like, well, I'm starting from the back, so I guess I have to do three next. So then I'd read book three. Book three, for those of you who don't know, has a massive cliffhanger. (laughs) So then I'd go back. (laughs) And then I'd read two, and then I'd read one. This is the best reading order. And I did this, like, every time I read the series. That's like a locker combination. Oh my god. Yeah. And then, because of Gus, I should give my history with the audiobook, too, which is that I listened to the book for the first time last December, and I was driving home for Christmas break with my dog, and so it's, it was like, you know, an 11-hour drive that I was doing over two days, and I got on the road the second day, I think it was, and this audiobook was only, the one, like, one of the very few things I had to listen to, um, <laughs> and totally perfectly safe, because I love this book from the bottom of my heart, I know that. But I never listened to the audiobook. <laughs> they love the voices. <laughs> Look, I have nostalgia. Possibly some of the most irritating voices in a <laughs> production I have ever encountered. Most notably, Simmerine, who can't seem to say a single sentence without emphasizing every phrase. <laughs> if every phrase is emphasized, aren't all of them the same? That defeats the point of emphasis. Yeah. Yeah, it does. <laughs> I will absolutely acknowledge that my feelings about this audiobook are 100% nostalgia. Just all nostalgia. All right. So now it's time for first test or translating the DeMont Morency. The what? 
the 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 he was the author. Oh who, right. He's the one with the super opaque language. Yeah, so we're translating the De Montmorency, which is to say we're taking a complicated plot and distilling it into I'm a good host. You are. This is great. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so my summary for this book is a girl disappoints her parents and also society, but it all works out anyway. It's extremely good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, so a slightly uh, wider expansion of this summary is a princess who isn't quite down with the way that society expects princesses to act decides to go work for some dragons. The dragons have their own thing going on and a totally different like society and political system. So on the way, she meets a lot of cool role models and also stops wizards from destroying the dragon monarchy. Yep. Anything to add? Any thoughts? Anything I, I might have glossed over there? She makes some friends who aren't, like, role models. Not that they wouldn't be good role models, but they're, like, her peers. Yeah. This is maybe the shortest book summary that we've ever had, guys. That's partially because book has like an actual well-done plot that makes sense you can summarize it's a very i know it's kind of jarring (laughs) it's a very compact plot and any padding in this book is like it's not like oh there's a side quest it's like simmering like has to get some hen's teeth and also like complains about some knights it's great and it's fun and it's just like related to the rest of the plot that's happening, you know? Yeah. One thing that I really love about these books is that it feels like every sentence is world building. Even Mm. just like throwaway jokes and lines are really good. Like, for example, in the Kingdom of Linderwall, the number five is fashionable. And like, (laughs) that just says a whole lot because it's a kingdom that cares about what's fashionable, but also chooses totally arbitrary things to be fashion. (laughs) That's the first sentence. I do want to say one thing about the structure of the text before we move on to world building. In the text itself, there's a point where Zeminar the wizard is melting and his text gets smaller (gasps) as he melts. And I'm sort of a sucker for that. Like, I love anything that plays with the medium and, like, uses the things that you can do with the medium, even if it's just the font getting smaller to denote that someone is melting. I'm so glad that you told me this. (laughs) <laughs> you didn't? Oh, right, because the audiobook. Yeah. Please tell me anything oh. else that's like, I don't think there is anything else, but if there were. There isn't. There might be something in future books. Did the audiobook do anything that kind of really used the medium or? Oof. Um, well, no, I would say not really, but there was definitely one line. Um, this isn't necessarily a thing that I liked. I, I have I have read the the. Um, the paper versions Um, and I don't think that this is something that was indicated in the text there's a line where the the king um, Simmering's father is talking about her arranged marriage to um, what's the Randall Therondil yes and he's like I didn't think you'd care about the size of his paws kingdom and it was like what (laughs) no No! <laughs> it's 
for me personally. Oh my gosh. I mean, there is a later innuendo that is the reason why I think Eleonora is straight in the text. Yes, it's a good innuendo. Yeah, that one. Or she, not necessarily straight, but definitely aloe, you know? Uh, We'll talk about it later, but... (laughs) Our later section about innuendos. Yeah. I... Okay, I'm never going to get over that. Who made that decision? <laughs> I... Multiple people had to think that this was a good idea. The voice actor, the director, whoever was actually actively cutting the lines together. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now that my world has been turned upside down by choices made in the audiobook, <laughs> uh, let's move on to Run the Dominion Jewel or Run the Collins Stone, which is also a jewel in this piece these books it takes it further away from the pun but now it's its own thing so run the colin stone is a segment where we talk about world building and magic and other stuff (laughs) so like i said earlier this book is like 100 percent world building and it's all just in a world where fairy tales are real but everyone kind of is so used to them that they forget that they don't have to do them (laughs) Mm-hmm. And I love it. They forget that they don't have to do them? Arguably, I think they actually do have to do them, which is what's especially interesting. Simmerine doesn't have to do them. There are prophecies that wind up getting fulfilled, but, like, you don't have to follow your role. You don't have to follow your role, but you do have to follow the rules. One of the things that I love about Simmerine is that she's very genre-savvy, and she knows exactly how she needs to follow mm-hmm. the rules and how to turn them to her advantage. So she'll definitely say, like, oh, I can't go do that because I'm not the right character. I have this in my notes as, like, weaponized genre savvy, but, like, I love how um, when Therondil gets his wish from the genie, um, and his wish is to fight a dragon and defeat him, uh, and then Simarine's like, okay, cool, can't can't fight Kazulba, you just gotta find another one, gotta be male. Uh, (laughs) She, like, always knows how to turn the fairy tale rules to work. Mm-hmm. Yes, but another thing that I love love about it, though, is, like, in cases like Alianora, where nothing really was supposed to happen to her, and people kept trying to make things happen to her anyway, so that she could, like, be a princess who had a path in life to follow. Like, it didn't occur to anyone that she didn't <laughs> have to do that. It didn't occur to anyone. Maybe let's not send her to the dragons to get kidnapped. Maybe she can just live a regular person <laughs> life. And she easily could have. Like, it would have been different from the way that society really expects their princesses to be treated. But it also would have been fine. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely, like, a major theme that I'm sure we'll come back to throughout this podcast because it shows up throughout the entire book, which is just this idea of, like, rigidity of expectations and rigidity of, like, social rules and how, like, it's not that social rules are bad, not that like these paths in life are bad it's like this rigidity this lack of open-mindedness that like keeps getting people in trouble yes yeah because like there's this whole thing about how like being the dragon's princess is totally respectable but not being in mortal terror (laughs) no absolutely not and there's a point where simmerine's talking about like how she knows how the perfect volume that she's allowed to yell if there's an ogre but she can't yell louder than that and it's just like a very much a parallel for society uh 
one of the things I think this book does really well that makes it feel, like, a little more real and, like, also just delightful is that, like, for every, like, fairy tale trope that exists, there is kind of a discount version in this book, right? It's like, you know, if it, it assumes that our fairy tales are, like, that top 5% of quality... Draws from another ninety five percent. So yeah, you have that. Doesn't work. I think in later books there's like one pair, one half of a pair of seven league boots. Like, it's every every uh, everything just doesn't work quite quite as well. And like, if you were going to be in a world where fairy tale tropes are real, of course they wouldn't always work because nothing works all the time. Mm-hmm. It's so fun. It really, it's such a fun little piece of, just, it makes it good to read, you know? Mm -hmm. It's also just really great to kind of see people complaining about the things in fairy tales that are supposed to be good. Mm -hmm. Um, And sort of like pushing against the whole idea of like happy ever after or the thing that works for one person will work for everyone. For example, roses and diamonds Mm -hmm. falling out of someone's mouth (laughs) probably only works for one kind of person. I think... Also, that the um, that that specific thing where it's like specifically pointing at fairy tales that most people are familiar with, or most of its the readers are going to be familiar with, and pointing out like all of the things about them where it's like this isn't very practical. It's a way of like kind of like you as the reader go, yeah, I always thought that wasn't very practical. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, and also I think it's it's an example of meta text that's one of the first examples of meta text that many children encounter, right? Because, like, the I love everything meta. Um, I always have. Like, my favorite books are almost always meta books. And this is honestly probably the first one I ever read. Because the problem with meta text is that you need to have read the first thing to get the joke in the second thing. And as a kid, you just don't have that built-up library of tropes that you can encounter and see discussed as easily. Except for fairy tale tropes, because we're fed those from such a young age. So this book opens up that idea of, of, of a meta text for the youngest audience that could appreciate it. And I love that. It's so good. Yeah, I was actually super big into fairy tale retellings for that exact reason, I think. Yeah, me too. Yeah, mm-hmm. I sort of liked being able to look at familiar things in a new way. And yeah. this was the only place that did that, really. I feel like we should talk about the dragons, right? Because they have their own political system in there. True. And it's completely different from the one that Simarine is used to. My entire thought is it doesn't have any sort of conclusion. It's just like their political system is a monarchy, but it's not based on lineage. It's based on this magic rock that tells them <laughs> who the best possible um, ruler uh-huh. could be. So it's, like, a bit like Divine Right in that you have this, like, entity that's saying this is the one, but also it's a real thing because Divine Right isn't real. Right, no, and I feel like this is actually a not totally uncommon thing in fantasy Mm -hmm. because it is often kind of a major conceit of romantic fantasy and other Mm -hmm. fantasies that, that there is some sort of literal magical divine right to rule and that's why we can ignore the problems with monarchy for the sake of our fun book 
and this is one of the especially mechanized versions of that, but I, I do think that's not an uncommon way of handling it. Which, like, I think that's fine. Right. Mostly, I don't think our, our, while our world has many problems, I don't think our world, or at least, like, modern America has a huge problem with thinking that a monarchy is a good political system. So I think glossing over the issues with it in order to have our fun story about, like, knights and dragons, like, I'm cool with that. I'm cool. One thing that I just, like, want to add in there, though, is within dragon culture, there it exists outside of this rigid society with its rigid rules, but a lot of dragons are also shown to adhere to their mm-hmm. own rigid rules that also intersect with the society. And even Kazul, the dragon who breaks these norms the most, is hinted to have had a previous princess. Like, oh so God. did she kidnap someone? Like, did Kazul also participate in this system before? Because... Like, there's a lot of stuff that Simmerine inherited from the previous princess. And, like, she talks about how the previous princess didn't really keep things tidy. But other than that, it's never noted. Mm-hmm. I think the previous princess, well, she, like, had run away moderately recently. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. I mean, it's also, like, a somewhat quirky thing because we do know that this system is, like, kind of ingrained in both the human and the dragon societies. And so, like, I mean, once again, like, not condoning kidnapping, but I think part of the reason, like, that it doesn't read as, like, a problem for the morality of Kazul um, in the text is just, like, well, this is just a thing you do. Like, they arrange for the princess to be somewhere where she might be conveniently carried off and then the dragon comes and conveniently carries her off and then she gets a better husband mm-hmm. and it's like it's like an exchange and it's like just like a thing that is built into the social system and it like more or less tends to benefit right. most people involved mm-hmm. yeah it's just I'm interested in the idea that Kazula was actively participating in the system until she had a chance to, like, reap the benefits without participating Well, and I think that that is an example of why Kazula falls on the kind of good side in the narrative, is that the problem, as I said earlier, like, the problem is not with with necessarily having social conventions, having these social structures, it's the rigidity that Patricia T. Reedy seems to be pushing back at over and over again in the text. And so the idea of someone who's like, well, yeah, like, right now, like, it is convenient and useful for me and potentially useful for this princess to have a princess as a dragon. But if at a later point it is more convenient for me to have a volunteer princess or to not have a princess, I'll do that thing. I don't, I don't, I'm not wedded to this one social concept of how I should exist. Um, But rather I say this is the most practical thing for me right now. Whether, yeah, whether that's having a princess or not having a princess and having a chief cook and librarian, great. Uh, (laughs) I do also, I do find the idea of, like, what are the social conventions of dragons interesting, because you're right, like, we get this idea that the problem with Linderwall is that it's so normal and so tied to its expectations of how the world works. Um, But we do see that, like, dragons have those, and they often aren't pushed back about, I think, back on as hard with the dragons. Um, That, like, 
Kazool often is somewhat posturing for status in the narrative. Um, for example, when they have the dinner party and it's a way for her to show up Warag and say, nope, I, my princess is still here and therefore I am a dragon. <laughs> okay, before we move on from that, I just want to really quickly say my favorite metaphor in the whole book is like, having a princess is like buying a bowl of fancy imported pears. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> it's good and like it shows your status. <sighs> but you could just as well have the crystallized sugar face. <laughs> and Serene is like a little offended. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because also, I i mean, I buy fancy fruit when I want to impress people. <laughs> <laughs> it's so good. And I, st- I loved it then and I love it now. Like, there are modes of, for example, like coronation gifts. Like, Simmerine's like, oh, you're very sick. Maybe we shouldn't be focusing on a coronation gift. Also, what if you become king? And everyone's like, no, you just bring a coronation gift anyway. And also, <laughs> if you're very sick, you still have to do it. And... That doesn't seem like a great idea, but that's not pushed against, except by Simmerine questioning it. Except I don't actually think that's that big of a problem. I don't think it's a problem, but I do, I'm just interested in the contrast. Yeah, but that's, yeah, I I think it is very much part of this idea that, yeah, I go back to that. It's not that social rules are a problem. They are useful. And when they are useful, you should use them. When you need to start off on a good foot with your king, or you need to you know, show all your friends that your princess is still here, you should go ahead and do it. Like, don't, this, we're not talking about, like, you know, a hipster mentality of, like, if this is a social convention, it is bad. Mm -hmm. Um, Because that is in and of itself a form of rigidity, right? And also, now that I've said it, like, it's not Simmerine's place to critique someone else's, like, social rules, you know? Like, she is involved with the dragons now, but that's not she like she's not actually a member of that culture like she participates in it but she's not actually a part of it so it makes sense really Mm -hmm. and i think yeah and i think that that is in some ways shown in her like being like kazool like you totally can't go to this thing and kazool's like uh no actually this is like the most important thing for me to go to because it's like literally us picking the king then what does kazool do she goes Mm -hmm. and becomes king so that case, Kazool was proven pretty right. She yeah. always is. <laughs> I think that we should move on to Social Justice Corner. How are we feeling about that? I love a good Social Justice Corner. It's my favorite corner to be in. It's pretty good. Should we maybe start our Social Justice Corner with, while you were busy being heterosexual, I was studying the raid, which is how I thought her name was pronounced, but it's not. Studying what? The raid. But it's reading. reading. Yeah. yeah. Oh. I could just. While you were busy being heterosexual, I was studying various things that I forced my tutors to teach me in secrecy, <laughs> not telling my parents. <laughs> That's like a good. That. I like that. Yes. A little long, but I think it works anyway. Yeah. So. The first thing that I want to say, I'm hoping I can get out of my system quickly, and it's that. Princess Semarine, and also almost everyone in this book, is an aromantic asexual icon. Seems fair. It's true, and real. Mm -hmm. And my evidence for that is partially just that not only does she think, oh, these princes are coming to rescue me specifically, I'll send them to a different princess and that will solve the problem, but everyone (laughs) really agrees with her on that. (laughs) And 
that's part of why I think she's an aromantic asexual icon, and so are all of her friends, except Princess Alianora, who is allosexual. That's the yep. end. Yeah, yep. that's that, that's my whole thesis. It's a good thesis. Thank you. Does anyone else have queer th- queer things to bring to the table? Uh, well, in gendery things, dragons choose their sex at puberty. It appears, mm-hmm. which is very interesting and not explored very much beyond one sentence in one. It's sh- a throwaway line. Why not? But. I, like, it leads me to so many questions. <laughs> Among them, do dragons have gender roles? At all? It is unclear to me. We don't see any. Yeah. Did, did dragons just get the concept of, like, and, and the words for king and queen from humans? And they were like, these are, like, important roles that humans have. Let's make this office be king and this office be queen. And then just, like, that, it stops there. I like the idea that humans got it from dragons and then imposed their ideas of femininity versus masculinity on the titles without really, (laughs) without really knowing anything about dragons or their gender. (laughs) It appears they don't have gender roles, although they do choose their sex. The other part there is, well, they don't seem to have any uh, any gender roles in dragon society, Human gender roles seem to be very important to them in how they think about humans. So they have, like, internal human gender roles for humans. Notably, there's a point that was, like, very frustrating in the when they go to the dragons um, to say, like, hey, these wizards are trying to, like, throw your king thing. And one of the dragons is like, oh, they're princesses. Of course they're just making up hysterical, like... Like, I'm not sure they actually use the word hysterical, but it's very much those hysterical women are making stuff up. Mm-hmm. And so, like, that's fascinating to me, because, like, is that, like, dragons having internalized misogyny against human women? Or is this just, like, a... They don't even really have a concept of gender, but they have a concept of princesses, which is still a box that they put people in, and they have, like, definitely have, like, acquired some of the biases against women and princesses from humans and use them against that box of people so one thing that i actually was thinking about in regards to talking to dragons the seek or no not talking to dragons searching for dragons yes searching for dragons the sequel is that that's the sort of the first time where people talk about princesses in terms of being girls or women and talk about princes in terms of like being men and boys like before that it's sort of like it's just princesses are princesses and obviously that is a heavily gender-coded title but for dragons maybe it's not right yeah no it's exactly that it's like we don't actually know whether dragons treat human women who are not princesses the way they treat princesses because we don't see that they don't really have any interaction with human women who aren't princesses and so like they aren't making decisions based on gender. They are making decisions based on your existence as a princess. <laughs> right. Dragons do seem to really respect Morwen, but we haven't seen a lot of dragons interacting with Morwen. I think it's mostly Kazul and like the mention of Morwen from elsewhere. Uh, yeah, no, I think, yeah, I think it's the, the escort dragons like recognize her, but we don't, mm-hmm. they don't really, inter- we don't get much of an idea of what they know about her. Right. Mm-hmm. 
but I think that like yes princesses in this book are like heavily coded as like sort of silly women like silly Mm -hmm. is always the word used to describe them and I do appreciate that for Simmering it's very much like you're silly but that's who you are and that's Mm -hmm. fine and like you're still like a person who's nice enough but it's also still very much falling in these stereotypes and sort of like saying that frivolity is the worst thing that you can have. Okay, actually, so let's let's say we're moving yes. on. Can I give my background of reading this book recently? Mm-hmm. Just that like a few years ago, I read a Tumblr post that just came across my dash from somebody who said something about, somebody asked them about the Internet Four Chronicles and they said, Oh, I reread those recently, and I was really disappointed, and I don't like them anymore because I think they're pretty misogynistic. And I was like, that's weird. And I only kind of skimmed this post because I didn't want it to ruin a book that I loved in childhood. And then I never saw the post again. haven't been able to find it again, but I have reread the books. And I cannot figure out where they're coming from. (laughs) I have tried. I have looked for it. And as much as I hear what you're saying, Amy, and that is the best guess I can have of what they were thinking, is that they were thinking, you know, there are all of these women princesses who are very frivolous and not great. Um, I don't think that's a problem. I don't think that's a feminist problem. And I think that's because, for one, we see Simmerine, who is not any of those things, and is not coded as masculine like it's not a matter of like she is less feminine and therefore better maybe that she's less frivolous and therefore better but even Eleonora who's not as as like clever or you know down to earth she's still very much portrayed as a great character the characters who are not are the characters who can't get over their rigid ideas of how the world should work and can't move past that when they're in a situation where those ideas don't work and actually I would argue that, if anything, those are almost characters who are examples of toxic femininity, which is not a thing that ever gets talked about as much as toxic masculinity. I think if it exists, it exists in the form of these princesses. Like, there is a princess who, whenever anything goes wrong and she can't get her way, she just bursts into tears. Um, Which is, like, Mm -hmm. really the opposite of the, like, toxic masculinity, like, can't express your emotions. That's... Uh, I see, that's the, the sort of thing that I um, see discussed in conversations about race and how white women react to criticisms of racism, mm-hmm. is what I would tie that to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But so, yeah, so I would say that, and then, like, the kind of mean girl side of it with Karen Dwell, um, the kind of classic, like, girl who weaponizes social standing in a way that is extremely unkind to anyone who has less social standing than her, which in this um, situation is very much coded as um, specifically class and money. Mm -hmm. She is the one with the golden crown. Um, With diamonds. Yeah, golden crown with diamonds. Mistreats the people with silver and I forget what metal Eleanor's crown is. Uh, Hers is pearl and her hair is the color of ripe apricots. Right. I've read these books a lot of times. But yeah, so I was actually in some ways surprised, but I still do. I think that actually the gender politics in this holds up pretty well. Oh, I definitely Mm -hmm. agree with you. It's just that like 
when I think that this is something that we do have to discuss because it's there and it can be read out of it. Like if you aren't like if you're reading at a certain level and if you go deeper, I do think that it breaks down. But I think that you can like I think that there are definitely ways that you if you read this when you are very young, you get the wrong critique out of it and it becomes I have to be a sense of like a sensible person who works mostly in practicality. Mm-hmm. I also do want to point out that the opening of talking to dragons is very much or not talking to dragons searching for dragons is very much like Mendenbar being like women are all trying to trick me into marrying them (laughs) all the time just using their women tricks (laughs) and I don't like love that and obviously he gets better and unlearns it but like it does make it maybe my least favorite book because I have to sit through him learning that like no, that's, like, just what has been taught and the way that, like, rigid societal rules are working. Please chill, my guy. (laughs) Here's the thing. I don't agree with me that strongly, but I do think we have to talk about it. Yeah, um, I think think the only other point I'd make there um, is I think there is definitely an argument that could be had about what it means to critique frivolousness. Um... First of all, I think there's two things. To what degree that is gendered is an interesting question, and to what degree that is inherently a bad idea is also. Like, I think there are parts mm-hmm. of frivolousness that can be reasonably critiqued, um, especially um, when it comes to class contexts and other things. Um, one of the things that's very noticeable is this frivolousness that you're talking about is associated as much with class as it is with um, gender. And one of the ways that I would note that is um, that Therondel is actually also noted to be frivolous in a way that is not great over and over again, especially when she first meets him and he's like looking at all these swords and he's like very taken by just the pretty swords that and Simmering's like, that has terrible balance, what are you doing? Like, mm-hmm. um, so I'd argue that like both that, that, that to some degree lessens the gendering of it in this book in a way that is helpful to me. And so while I think you're right that people absolutely still can read it as a gendered thing, um, then that's that's true, but... It's a bad reading. Always going to mm-hmm. read the, thing, the unfortunate things they have learned from society into things because they are in the people, not in the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Only so much a book can do to counter that. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, if you're going to if you're going to bring up a bad Tumblr post, I'm going to try to make sure that we knock down that bad Tumblr post, <laughs> even though you don't remember what was in it. Here we go. <laughs> yeah, I think we've done a solid job of trying to figure out what they were bothered by in this Tumblr post. I will never be yeah. able to find again. It has bothered me since the day I read it. Great. No, <laughs> the day I you skimmed it to be clear. <laughs> yes, mm-hmm. since the day I skimmed it. Yeah. So, like, I did just say everything that I could possibly imagine being a gender problem in the... Well, everything that I could possibly imagine being a feminism problem in this, I guess. Right. Well, and and I would just like to to go back and say, like, I I do think you're also not wrong that, like, there are ways that critiques of frivolity are bad in that, like, it's not bad to like cool, fun things. I like a lot of the things in this book because they're ridiculous. Uh, Mm -hmm. I, I am all for fun for frivolity at times, but um, that doesn't mean I don't like books that celebrate practicality. And I think there is like a 
I'm more ups- I, I am upset by the gendering of that, but not by it a critique of frivolity in itself because I think it's like many aspects something that is bad in excess and good in its proper amount. <laughs> yeah, I kind of love practicality. And I, I love that Cimmerine is just an icon for practicality, and so is everyone she knows. Well, not everyone she knows, but all the people older than her who are living successful lives. Mm-hmm. <laughs> all right, so how are we? Are we, are we social justice? Um, we could bring up race very briefly. Okay. There is one character of color in this book. It is the djinn. Oh. That is my note. He's described as a dark-skinned giant in a turban and loincloth. That's my entire note. Yep. Not great. Yeah. In one of the sequels, the only character of color I've encountered so far is Roma, but is not called Roma, so... My dog is sighing at the state of race in this book. Yeah. I want you to know that. Not excellent. Not excellent. So... That's, that's our, that's race. That's race. I don't have much of a critique other than I don't think it's great. Yeah. Gus and I talked about this, like, almost a little bit in that we brought up the concept with each other. (laughs) Wizards are corporations. Discuss. All right. So here's where I think you were going with this, (laughs) is that the plot of this, of, of dealing with dragons is that the villain plot is that the wizards are trying to uh, rig the election Mm -hmm. and that this is the sort of thing that corporations are doing to modern day America. How'd I do? You did pretty good, but I also wanted to talk about the ecological um, implications of what the wizards do. I love it. Yeah, so dragons are creatures that naturally generate magic, and the enchanted forest is a place that naturally generates magic. Wizards cannot generate their own magic, so they have to take magic from other sources. And there are ways that they are allowed to do that. There are certain um, places where they can go to do that, and there are regulations put on them to stop them from taking all of the magic and destroying the ecosystem. The wizards work on ways to get around those things. So for example, there's a large plot in the second book that's about them taking magic directly from the enchanted forest when they are clearly not supposed to do that. The first book is about them trying to get more dragon magic and more power to take magic from other places. They show what happens when corporations go unregulated and the way that corporations fight against regulations at all times in order to increase their own gain, which is unsustainable for the larger community. Great. Good theory. <laughs> I love it. Thank yes. you. Um, I, I have a related, the, the, I think the segue to my point about wizards is that corporations are people now. Mm-hmm. What maybe they're not anymore. Remember when that was a thing that was in the news though? It was like corporations are people. Yeah. Anyway, that was a thing that I was barely politically aware during. But I'm going to talk about um are wizards human? The answer, if you're wondering, is no. Um, are they answer? You know, it doesn't confirm either way. But so wizards, um there's this this quote here. I have it pulled up one second. Uh there's this point where um, Roxim is talking, and they're talking about um, 
who stole a book from a different dragon. Um, they're like, if it wasn't a wizard, who was it? And Roxham says, could have been anybody. An elf, a dwarf, even a human. No reason to think it was a wizard. They're not humans. They're not humans. I also find it interesting that, like, every wizard mentioned is, like, definitely at least coded male. Definitely at least uses oh, he, him pronouns. Yeah. But Zeminar does have a son. Like, Antaral yeah. is Zeminar's son. Yes. So, like, I... <laughs> Like, I'm just wondering if maybe wizards are, like, made or cloned or, like, created in a more constructive way? More, like, right. physically because constructing them? If they're their own species or whatever, and we never see any, like, female wizards or whatever. Mm-hmm. I think there are many, many, many possible answers because of various reasons. But, um... I do think that the the flip side of this is that witches are not just the um, female equivalent of wizards because it is stated later in the book that witches are human. Mm-hmm. And Morwen specifically is a human. So, wait, are wizards just cr- any creature that cannot create its own magic? Because Possibly. I think that Morwen can, ha- like... Morwen doesn't create her own magic. Morwen uses other things to make magic, so she uses her the ingredients in her spells. Oh right, yes. Such that's like the distinction between like you have like dragon magic, which is innate, witch magic is created from and like objects, and magician magic is magician magic is just overly academic. I don't know. Yeah. And wizard magic is stolen. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, so I don't know if wizard is, like, a sort of a job title in that if it's, you know, just, like, the way that they get their magic, or if it's just, like, you know what? This is, like, one of the few times where we're actually seeing a fantasy, um, a fantasy setting where they're just going with the Tolkien model of wizards, which is, wizards are just, like, their own weird species that's, like, like, kind of very powerful and weird and mysterious, but also, in this case, not actually very powerful from their own, like, selves. But, like, they're their own species. They're not human. Yeah. yeah. No, I I think you're right. Like, I definitely think you're right. What is up with wizards? They're bad. They're bad. They're all bad, and they all love to just, like, like gaslight everyone all the time. And, like, they really like being like, you know what, let's put people in situations and then tell them that, like, we didn't do that to them and they got themselves... I'm sorry, I'm really pissed off about that time that Seminar, like, made the cliff disappear and Simarine was like, what is this? And he's like, oh, do you need some help? Then you'll be in my debt. And Simarine's like, "I, I think I got this, thank you very much. Did you do this? And he's like... Possibly. How could you know? Anyways, then she handles it and she's great. I hate the wizards a lot. Yeah, they're bad. They're bad Mm. and I don't like them. And they're also, they're corporations, but they're also individuals. And those individuals are terrible people. Mm -hmm. Okay. With that said, let's move on to reading Between the Lines, Uh. which is zombie author slash piercing the veil. 
<laughs> so these books, as I mentioned earlier, these books were not published in the order that they are chronologically supposed to be read according to the, the either the publisher or the author. Both, I think. I think. Yeah. Mm. So Dealing with Dragons is actually the second book written and Talking to Dragons is, was written first. Talking to Dragons is, is it spoilers to talk about the plot of Talking to Dragons? I think we don't want to give them the full plot, but I think we can say that Talking to Dragons the premise is about basically a next gen character. Yes. Following what I already mentioned to be a big cliffhanger in the book. <laughs> it's a it's a first person narrative. It's also a narrative from a character who for spoiler reasons doesn't know much about the world um and is therefore learning everything for the first time and it's a very different entry point. Mhm. Yeah, I actually, when I read through these books the first time, I found it very frustrating that the main character of these books didn't know everything when I knew everything. And I think that maybe it should still be, like, I don't think that I would love this series as much if Simmerine hadn't been my jumping on point, because she is very important to me. But I would definitely enjoy talking to dragons much more if it were the first book that I'd read in this series and I got to learn all the things <laughs> as everyone else did. I already uh, explained that I really loved the fourth book as a kid. The reasons, like, I cannot entirely replicate now, except that I do think, in some ways, the fourth book is, like, the most fast-paced, the most straight adventure, um, because it is, in some ways, as it is conceived now, the climax of the entire series. Um, that, that it's when everything comes to fruition and all of the characters show up at the end and, you know... Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I just read it, and the whole time I was like, where's my best friend Simmerine? Where's my best friend Kazul? Why isn't Morwen here the whole time? What is going on? Like, I just, I think maybe I just really liked the practical characters a lot. (laughs) Yeah. And also I found the lizard very annoying. There's a lizard in this book. Yeah, also, the other thing that is interesting about the fourth book that distinguishes it from the first three is that the fourth book is the only one that's set entirely in the Enchanted Forest. Oh, right! For a series called The Enchanted Forest Chronicles, you may have noticed we didn't spend much time in the Enchanted Forest in this book. It was, like, mentioned one time or something. We went to visit Morwen. Yeah, yeah true. the trees were very big. But the fourth book actually takes place entirely in the Enchanted Forest, and it's much more focused on, like, that as the magical world, whereas in the first three books, you kind of much more focus on the fact that the entire world is a fairy tale world. The Enchanted Forest is just kind of the most extreme form. Let's move on to Queen's Riders, or the Right Honorable Wicked Stepmother's Traveling, Drinking, and Debating Society and Evil Uncle's Auxiliary a section where we talk about friendship, human and animal. Let's talk about some friendship moments, friends. All of them? Uh Mm Uh-huh. They're all so good. I love that Simmerine just, like, gets to have a friend her age, but also a friend who is a literal dragon, and also Mm -hmm. a friend who's a very old man dragon. (laughs) (laughs) Roxim is great. (laughs) Great character. I love that she's like, oh yeah, Roxham reminds me of my great uncle, who's a human being, (laughs) and like, who's like a little hard of hearing. I just, I love Roxham, he's just a grandpa. Uh, And for Kazul and Simmerine's friendship, I just have written down 
the like peak moment of friendship there, which is like after Kazul has become king of the dragons and Simarine is just like, I don't need me anymore. What are you gonna do? And everybody's like, Are you crazy? <laughs> and of course, Kazool still needs you. Mm-hmm. Another title. It's so good. I also, uh, so I also really love Kazool and Morwen's friendship. Yeah. Um, because they just bond over how much everyone else is just like not as practical as they are and not as interested in like knowing as much as possible about the world and how to like go about in it. Uh-huh. Which is also Morwen and Simmerine's friendship. Like, mm-hmm. one of my favorite things about that friendship is it's just, like, that pure moment of, like, that first time you met a friend who just thought the same way you did. Mm-hmm. It, I know who that friend was for me. And, like, I have other very good friends from that time period, but that first time you kind of were like, oh, you just get how I think. Like, enough mm-hmm. to explain it. It's just, like, a crazy moment. And captured that very well. Yeah, like, one thing that I really, really love about Simmering, Kazool, and Morwen is that they're all perfectly ag- in agreement when Simmering is like, these suitors keep showing up and it is ruining my productivity. <laughs> and everyone's just like, it does sound like that would ruin your productivity. Right, like, and then all of their responses are not like, well, we should explain to them and maybe they'll go away or, like, you know, maybe we should think about what we're doing. It's like, okay, like, what's the most practical way to just make this stop? Like, let's put up a mm-hmm. road sign, like, <laughs> and a lie around, like, it's all cool, like, this will make it work. It's all so good. Yeah, I love, I just love that, like, trivecta of three very different people who approach the world in the same way. Yes. <sighs> And then, on the totally other side, I love Simmerine and Alianor, who, like, they're so good. Love each other, even mm-hmm. very different. Mm-hmm. They both have, like, somewhat similar values, even though their personalities and their methods for going about things are completely different. And so, like, it's cool. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then there's, like, the stone prince who just shows up <laughs> and Simmering leaves him in a room overnight by accident. <laughs> and he's, like, totally okay with it, basically. Yeah. He's like, it's okay that you didn't leave me a candle. It's fine. If I had had a candle, they would have seen me. Also, there's a point where Antarell is threatening the stone prince and he just, instead of saying anything to him, he just turns to Simmering and is like, should I be taking him seriously? <laughs> <laughs> I love it so much because he just immediately is like aware of what Simmerine's role in this friendship is. <laughs> also, uh, Alianor and Simmerine, the moment when uh, Alianor first encounters Simmerine pretending to be like a clueless princess, and Alianor is just like having a hard time not laughing because, she's like, that, that's not Simmerine. Also, great. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, like, also, Alianora doesn't quite know what's going on as much as Simmering does, but she is always just down to jump in on it. Right? Like, and she's, yeah, she, she doesn't, she would never think to come up with a fireproofing spell or figure out how to make it work, but, like, she'll do it with you. Like, why not? Right, she's here to help out. Yeah, she'll throw some soapy water on some wizards. Yeah, like... She's just, like, she loves her friend. Why doesn't Eleonora ever come back? It's a good question. It's a really good question. 
Yeah. Also, like, I I want to find out what happens to the stone prince because I do want him to still be made of stone, but just have, like, stone outfits also. Yes. Mm-hmm. I, love the, I love the friends in this book so much. Like, it's all just such positive friendships. And Simmerine even, like, it talks about her talking to the other princesses sometimes. And she always says, like, they're very nice or they're very silly or, like, whatever. But there's still, like, these relationships that the princesses can have with each other in there. Mm-hmm. And then, like, you see the way that all the dragons really respect Kazool. Like, it just feels like this is a book where people have communities already. And mm-hmm. it's so good. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, not enough animal friends in this one. True. Yeah. I don't think we've spent too much time talking about other books, because that's not fair. But for those of you out there who don't know... There are good animal friends in the third book. So if oh, third book, you get some good animal friends. There are some real good animal friends in the third book, and there's also one, like, buck wild animal friend in the third <laughs> book. <laughs> I forgot about that. I was, I was, like, legitimately just thinking about the, you know, the many animal friends, not yeah. uh, the one. The plurality <laughs> of friends. Ah, uh, but I mean, there is like Kazul has animal friends via Morwen's cats, and Morwen has animal friends via Morwen's cats. cats. Sit on Kazul. They curl up on Kazul, and Kazul's just like, I'm gonna get up now, and they all just go, whoop! <laughs> and they, they slide right off her, and then they stalk out of the house because they're very annoyed at her. <laughs> they just wanted to be her friend, and she had stuff to do. Mm hmm. A very good and realistic depiction of cats, honestly. Mm-hmm. But other than that, there's really not that much animal friendship. There's like a bird that she kills and then gives her some transportation feathers, but... Yeah. No, that's for later books. Do we want to move on to to thing that we already did? Yes, yes. All right. Welcome to Night Vision or the Caves of Fire and Night Vision. where we talk about spoilers for this book and later parts of the series. We're going to first move some stuff up here that we said earlier because we accidentally did spoilers. You're about to hear 15 seconds of music. Just skip ahead until you hear it again. Let's go. Let's talk spoilers. It gets better, though the fourth book in looking back at it now. Yeah. For one, she knows how to name characters things that aren't Daystar. <laughs> Daystar, Daystar, a literal warrior cat's name. It is what oh I would God. have named the hero of this book when I was in fourth grade. No, but... When I was at my height of loving that book, which may explain a lot. But, but Shelby, <laughs> say the name of the star that's out during the day. There's a star that's out during the day, and it has a name that we call it. Oh, oh my god. Yeah. Oh god! Yeah. Oh my god. Yeah. This is the worst thing. Yeah. Oh no. Please don't tell me that was a pun all along. Shelby, you know that I can't tell you that. (laughs) Well, with that revelation. It absolutely was. Yeah. That was absolutely intentional. Holy sh- I mean, dang. I've been angry for, oh gosh, 14 years now. <laughs> <laughs> okay, 
Okay, this absolutely needs to go in the spoiler section. <laughs> yeah. I'm not kidding. Yeah. Anyway, so that's that's a pun I knew. Um, yeah, to explain, in case you maybe did not get the pun, the pun is that the word sun both means the thing in the sky in the day, the star in the sky in the day, and also the book is about him being the son of Simmerine and also his dad, whose name I don't remember. Mendenbar, king of the yeah. enchanted forest. Mm-hmm. Yep. And his fancy, fancy sword. Uh, yeah, <laughs> so... Okay, let's talk a little bit about these books. I actually have a fan theory that is also a spoiler for the end of the book, the first one. So in the beginning of the book, Simmerine finds the dragons because a frog tells her to do it. And the frog Mm -hmm. can speak. And when she asks, he says, oh, yeah, you pick some stuff up from Enchanted Princess. But at (laughs) the end of the book, a dragon does turn into a toad. I think that the frog is a former dragon. And that's why the dragons all knew Simmerine was coming. Or why he knew exactly where to send her. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah, because I don't... I feel like a dragon and a frog might hang out, maybe, in this universe. But I don't know if they would have the... Uh, if he would have that kind of clout, you know, in the community. Yeah. It's an mm-hmm. interesting theory, except that I also think we've... It's been established that dragons only become frogs slash toads, whatever, when they've been very, very bad and not dragon-like. And I don't know that someone like that would then go and be helpful to a princess. Well, people change. There's... (laughs) No, I mean, there is the fact that this frog did tell... Did interfere and start talking to Simmerine. When Simmerine was like, I'd rather be eaten by a dragon, clearly did not mean it, and was like, I'm going to take you literally, here's where you can go, I'm disguising this as helpful advice, but really, it's where you can go to get eaten by a dragon. So, you know. Yeah. Maybe not the most helpful. Fair. And well-intentioned. Fair. Add add on to the theory. Yeah. Mm -hmm. In my heart, that frog is a dragon, formerly. And he's doing better now. But, like, you, you don't turn back into a dragon by acting like a dragon. If that were true, I would be a dragon right now from the age of eight onwards. <laughs> All right, so now let's move on to the Chamber of the Ordeal or the King's Crystal, where we rate the book for nostalgia, which I can do this time animal friendship (laughs) and recommend it to someone can i go first because i can do it this time all right Mm -hmm. i'm gonna give it a 10 out of 10 for nostalgia because i did cry several times just thinking about how important this book is to me um and you know what it aged well it aged really well for animal friendship i am gonna give it like very low animal friendship because so little of it was animals so that's like a three out of ten i'm sorry the cat friendship was really good but it was like four pages tops um, <laughs> and for who I would recommend it to I'm gonna buy a million copies of these and just hand them out to people on the street and say "Revealing with dragons right now in front of me sit down read it right now do it but if I need to pick a specific person I guess like no it's everyone <laughs> that's fair 
Okay, I can go next. Um, on nostalgia, I think I would give it a 9 out of 10. Which is not, like, it's not losing a point for anything that's its fault, I should note here. It's purely because I read it for the last time in December. Mm-hmm. Which meant that I was at the point where I could basically, like, predict the next word in any given sentence at any given point. Um, <laughs> which is, like, not the worst place for a book, but also it's not as fun as when you're reading it for the first time in a while. So yeah, 9 out of 10. Still amazing. Still surprised at how well it stood up, as Amy said. Um, I I always kind of go into rereading books from my childhood with a little bit of tenseness, just a little worry. This one didn't betray me too badly, so that's cool. And then Animal Friendship. Yeah, I'm with you, Amy. Just not mm-hmm. enough. To be fair, this is a rating system not designed for this book. But like, <laughs> yeah, 2 out of 10? I know it can do better, because it does, later. Mm-hmm. And who would, would you... you... Who would you recommend this to? Mm. Yeah, all the peoples. But especially, I think, for those those kids who are are just getting ready to have their first meta, meta text books. <laughs> like, it's just so delightful for that age. Yeah, I, um, let's see. For, for nostalgia, I mean... I think I gotta give this 10 out of 10. It's just a great reread. Um, like, there was stuff I picked up on this time that I, you know, just kind of missed the other times. And that's partially just because I'm not a very uh, good um, or observant reader or listener, but also it's just real fun. I have more context for things as I get older. Mm-hmm. And that's something that's fun in these books. It doesn't take away from the nostalgia. It makes every reread fun. Uh... For, for Animal Friendship, you know, I mean, it just feels unfair to rate this on Animal Friendship, in a way. Um, that frog is kind of an animal friend. <laughs> well, the frog could be a dragon. And there's also an animal enemy. There's a frog enemy at the end. So, I mean, like, it's kind of like there's some cats, but also there's some not-so-nice animals. Uh-huh. I might just, I might just abstain from this one that seems fair would you be more comfortable yeah. rating it for dragon friendship oh 100 out of 10 yeah <laughs> i think i speak for us all <laughs> as for who i would recommend this to i of course agree with both of you um i was thinking as i was listening to it this time there's a, like a couple kids who i know who are hmm, maybe like eight or nine who have been reading like the Rick Reardon books and stuff, mm-hmm. and like who are just like really avid readers, and I was like, I need to make sure that these kids also read Dealing with Dragons. Yeah, I just I need to make sure that they're doing it because those are just they're very like they're not like similar books, but they have like similar sensibilities. I think uh-huh. great. I mean, um, it's harder to think of someone who I wouldn't who we wouldn't recommend this to. I think. Yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, there's nobody. Yeah. A great book. All right. Well, with our ratings done, let's move on to Palace Gossip and Listener Mail. I actually do not have any of the names of people who interacted us with us on Twitter or Tumblr. Oh, cool. I, I have all of those names. I think we're just going to go through all of them. All right. So, Gus, would you like to list some names? I would like to list so many names. Okay. So 
these are all the people who interacted with us on Tumblr and Twitter. I think we're starting with Twitter uh, from uh, June 9th through July 27th, which is the day we're recording this. Um, so that is Ziggy T. Schutz, um, Megan underscore D, Catherine and ZR, Deidre Loves Jim, Control underscore Abandon, Writing Rissa, Marble Tross, Elise Lockwood 1, Lingthusiasm, Finnegan with three Fs, Dragon Babies Pod, Mary Thorns, uh, Eileen Kramer, Indigo Han, It's the Bookcast, or maybe ITS the Bookcast, uh, Mercurek, I am going to mangle this one, uh, um, Miss Jobergs? I am very sorry. <laughs> uh, magic underscore GPS, Shortened Patience, Mosslam, Naomi Giddings, uh, Dorian Eyes, Holy Knuckled, Amber J7, Word Nerd Knitter, and Sally Greider. Sally Greider or Sally G. Ryder? I don't know. <laughs> um, on Tumblr, uh, we have It's Balderdash, Astrid Flies, Nightet, Writing Rissa, Agent Kala Delia Stark, Kadita uh, Vangu, Den Dendritic Hyphen Trees, Queen of Daffodils, Forest of Stories, Aerophily, Petite Ursus, Matilda Bell, Stars and Adams, Saga Shots, Celtic Teddy, Sophie A. Katz, Beloved Let's Rattle the Stars, and Ill-Tempered Dragons. Ooh, very good one. And thematic. Shout out to Ill-Tempered Dragons, I guess. <laughs> um, I don't have I don't have a list of patrons. We have 21 patrons. These are the 13 that have commented on the post asking for what name you'd like to be shared. If you are not one of these 13 and you would like to be and you would like to be named as a patron on the show, please just find the tagged post on our Patreon and comment with the name you'd like us to use. Our patrons are Joe, Abigail D, Vague Dark Entity, Ethan, Lemons, Math, Emmy, Isabel, Catherine, Abigail L. Courtney, Sophie, and Michaela. Thank you so much. Thanks so much. And as we mentioned, uh, this episode is um, uh, something that our patrons um, voted on. So if you donate any amount to us, um, you can also have a say in similar uh, potential bonus episodes. Um, we aren't going to do them super frequently, but... Um, when we hit when we hit patron um, points, I think mm -hmm. mostly when we as we hit our goals, we'll start we'll do bonus episodes, and there's also some bonus content up there at certain tiers. For example, bonus episodes, etc. Thank you so much for supporting the show if you're already donating. Thank you so much for supporting the show if you don't donate and are listening. Like we just thanks so much. Mm -hmm. I feel like we haven't said this uh, enough or at all, which is just that I'd just like to say. We have some pretty funny stuff up there. <laughs> it's good content. Yeah. <laughs> I laugh far more making Patreon bonus episodes than pretty much any other time in my life. Oh, <laughs> uh, really? That's charming. Yeah. I mean, I love to have fun with my friends. Thank you. I'm so glad you enjoy them. Yeah. <laughs> but, like, we're also never going to put any episodes that are, like, canon Tamara Pierce episodes up there, so don't worry if you can't mm -hmm. donate. It's like, it's just some fun bonus content, mm -hmm. you know, just like some voices. You want to hear our voices more? Cool. Cool. Uh, yeah, um, so thank you so much, and this episode comes to you courtesy of our patrons. Uh, 
Anyway, um, yeah, do you want to maybe share some listener mail? I know that we maybe got some. Yeah, I want to do this um, Griffin McElroy style, (gasps) I think. uh, This is an interaction from um, Indigo Han on Twitter in response to um, me complaining about how Antarell is the worst. (laughs) Indigo Han says, soapy water with lemon in in a water pistol. And then, plus, imagine the humiliation of taking out wizards with water balloons. (laughs) Which I appreciated, specifically because of that point when Zeminar's like, God, soap suds, this is humiliating. (laughs) Just imagine. God. Anyways, thank you, Indigo Han. You gave me a very large laugh. It was good. (laughs) Alright, thank you so much, Indigo Han. And... If we don't have any more listeners, maybe let's do our our Ingenitors themed sign off. See you, Cherry Juba listeners. <laughs> I didn't say cherries, but it's okay. I was nervous. It's, it was very cute. Thanks.